Now, this morning, the title of my sermon is Position to Possess the Promise. See, we have to get into position before we're ready to possess what God has in store for us. And we see this in this account this morning. Uh, we've been studying how the nation of Israel um, came and they consecrated themselves. Uh, we studied about that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, last week, we talked about they uh, circumcised the men um, as a sign of renewing the relationship with God. It was a mark of being the people of God. And we, we talked about how that is the modern-day application of that or the New Testament um, reality of that as we find in water baptism being marked as people of God. We talked about how they celebrated Passover. Uh, they, they celebrated uh, the, re- the renewal of the relationship that they have with God. And uh, they celebrated this. And we see that, that this relationship in the modern day um, application of that is, is communion, which we participated in last week. And so we see all of these happening. We see the, the people of God, the children of Israel, prepared for them to are being positioned to move into the promise that God has for them. But in this story today, we see how Joshua, their leader, he himself is positioned um, in a very a specific, very individual way as the leader of the people to be able to lead the people into all that God has for them. And so it's very important that we really stop and think and listen about and, and really observe what's going on in the heart of Joshua as their leader. And I think when we read biblical accounts, we study these, maybe we remember from Sunday school or, or even as we hear sermons or as we read our Bible, it's easy to think of, of, of stories of the Bible like fairy tales or like these legends um, tales of, of, of old, and, and we forget these are real people. We forget the, they have strengths and weaknesses just like we do. They have personalities just like, just like we do. And so um, we, we, it helps to really think about the personal application of this. And, and so we can think, well, this is, this is what happens in Joshua's life is, well, it's because he's Joshua and he's a leader of this great nation. And although that's true, there's also application in our lives because each one of us are of a, a leader of some form and fashion. And you'd say, oh, I'm, I'm not a leader, Pastor. That, that, that's not me. I, I don't want to lead. I don't want to be out in front. I don't want to be doing that. And I understand that there's a, that there's a spiritual gift of leadership. I understand that, that some people have positional leadership and that others don't. But, but what leadership really is is, is, is influence. And, and I'm always working. I'm, my definition of leadership is, is always changing. Um, because I've come into greater understanding of what leadership is. But what my current uh, definition of what biblical leadership is, is, is a person who simply serves and influences others to be and to do what God wants them to be and to do and leads them in that. And so I want to challenge you that at some level you're a leader. And you would say, and it'd be easy to say, like by default, and it would sound like a way of reducing that if you're a leader of nobody else, that you have the potential to be a leader of your children and your grandchildren, which would make it seem that that would be like the, the least leadership position. Now let me challenge that. That's probably your greatest leadership opportunity is with your children and with your grandchildren. That, that, that leverages you through influence and serving in a close proximity, closer than any other any other possible way. So don't discount that. Don't discount that, that the Lord has brought and is bringing people into your lives, including your children and grandchildren, niece, nephews. There's a reason God put us in family. It's because he wants 
the covenant of our relationship with him to go on from generation to generation. And so as we are leaders, turn to your neighbor and say, hey, you're a leader. Turn, turn to your other neighbor. I don't know why you didn't pick that other one, but turn to that one and say, hey, you're a leader. You're a leader because we are. And so we need to be in the correct, where our hearts need to be in a correct position to be able to, to ourselves possess all the promises that God has for us and then to lead others into that as well. And so as we, there's three positions we're going to talk about this morning, a position of worship, a position of holiness, and a position of spiritual warfare. So to bring you up to date on the story, we're in Joshua 5. They've just crossed the Jordan River. Jericho is before them. That is the next place. Uh, they know Jericho's been kind of looming there in the background, up in the mountains the whole time. Uh, they sent the spies who Rahab hosted, and they were able to, to discern uh, the city was afraid, was afraid of, of them, had fear of the Israelites, not fear of God, and, which is significant. We'll talk about that in a moment. And, but they're beginning to make their military uh, campaign against them. And, and as we talk about the military campaign that they're going to have in the nation of Canaan, and we're going to go into this more in the next several weeks. I can't cover it all today. But there's a, the many would have an ethical question of how is it that the people of God are going to come in and are going to attack, are going to have warfare, are going to kill men and women and children? How, how is this ethically okay? And that's a big question. It's a, it's a fair question. And it's one that I'm not going to fully unpack right now, but I'm going to do a drive-by, just a quick drive-by, just, um, just, some, in, in, just some instruction on it, just, just real quick. Um, the, the context for this comes from, you don't have it on the screen, but I'm going to read it to you. It's Genesis 15, 13, and 16. This is the promise God gave to Abraham, to be a father of many nations, and that this land would be would belong to his descendants. And this is what he told them. He said, The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that was Egypt, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they, were, they serve as slaves, which he did, and afterward they will come out with great possessions, which they did. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age, which he was, and in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So the implication here is that God is being patient with the present, with the present inhabitants of the land. And when their sins were going to reach a certain limit, God would use Abraham's descendants to bring judgment upon them. And so we see this patient God, not this God full of anger and wrath, that many people would like to portray the God of the Old Testament, but actually a very patient God. Another reason that judgment, that God used the Israelites as a form of judgment was because of sexual sin and because of child sacrifice. In Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 20, 24, right before this, there's a whole list of ways that the people of God are instructed to walk in sexual purity. And in the midst of this walking in, in, in sexual purity, and, and sexual holiness, a, sexual, a biblical sexual ethic. Um, in the middle of this is a line that says, and, and, and it forbids them to, to offer their children to the god um, uh, Molokai. Yeah, thank you, Molokai. And Moloch. And, as they, and he says, you can't do that. that that's, that's not right. And, and, and 
And I think this has huge implications for our nation today. Because as we look at our nation today, there's a brokenness in regard to a biblical sexual ethic in our nation. There's brokenness in regard to abortion and ending life. And, 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 and if you've had an abortion, I want you to know God's forgiveness is provided for you. And hopefully you've experienced that. And if you haven't, let us help you deal with that. Because there's no sin that the blood of Jesus can't cover and doesn't cover. And there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so... Um, there, there, there's, there's nobody here pointing fingers of judgment today. Nobody pointing fingers of judgment or accusations towards even a biblical sexual ethic. But the scripture is true and what God's word said is true. And so anytime there's violation of what God has instructed, there's, there's consequences that, that come because of that. And, and here we see the consequences on the land of Canaan, because it says in Leviticus eighteen twenty four and twenty five, the Lord tells His people how to live. He tells them how to live in sexual purity, and then verse twenty four He says, "Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled. Isn't that interesting? That how we live impacts the land that we live on. That." that the environment really does matter. Oh, you're going there, Pastor. I'm just saying, we are called to be stewards of what God has in place into us. And even, even how we live our life of following a biblical ethic impacts the very ground that we walk on. It's fascinating. You should, it, there's implications all through the Old Testament that that's true. And so I was punished, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. That, that's a reality that was happening. The, the land even rejected because of the, the justice of God. And we know that if we don't worship, right, who's going to worship? The rocks are, aren't they? The rocks are going to cry out because it's God's creation. And so because of their sexual immorality, because of child sacrifice, which child sacrifice, the, the point was they were trying to get an advantage with the gods, by sacrificing their children. And that's so that so often, often happens in our culture that, that people are, 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 are deceived, just like they were here in the Old Testament, deceived that if I end the life of a child, that somehow it will give me an advantage that I won't have otherwise. And usually it's to the God of self. And they'll have some sort of advantage. He's saying that's not the reality. That's not true. We don't live our lives that way. And so there's another reason they were um, the, God used the children of Israel to bring judgment, and that was because of witchcraft and occult practices. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 through 13, it says, When you enter the land your Lord God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or cast spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. So don't mess with that kind of stuff, friends. I'm telling you, there's bad consequences. Verse 13, you must be blameless before the Lord your God. And so... We, because of all this, Israel, is, Israel must not have a holier-than-thou attitude. Oh, well, we're the good ones, and you, are, you guys aren't. 
Because they're simply being a tool in the hand of God to bring about justice because of the wickedness and the iniquity and the sin that's in this land, that's in this nation. And, and if Israel becomes wicked, they're going to lose it too. Hint, hint. Exile coming up in a few hundred years. Right? That's, that's what happened to them. Because God is using the none too righteous Israel as an instrument of his judgment on a people who have reveled in their sin. So this gives us context. You're like, well, when do we get to the good news this morning, Jay? You're usually more positive than this. Well, there is good news, and, but we needed that context to let us see uh, what's going to happen in this story. So we come to Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. And I'm just going to read here. There's a, there's a chapter break at the beginning of chapter 6, but the story continues on through verse 5 in this passage. So I'm going to keep reading past that. So here we go, Joshua chapter 5, 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? It's a good question when you see a man with a, a sword. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does, the, does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because, because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times, and the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the people will go up every man straight in. And so that is, that's the account that Joshua has that positions him to lead the people of God into the promised land that he has for them. And so the very first thing we see here is that you have to, to possess a promise, you have to be positioned as Joshua was in worship. Let me go back to verse 13. It says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a, with a drawn sword in his hand. Now I just want to give props to Joshua for having the courage to go up to this man who was not, who he must have been unidentifiable, right? Because he doesn't know whose side he's on. And I, I kind of think he would have known who would have been on his side. You know, you know what I'm saying? But like, I don't know how to respond to you. I don't, I don't have a frame of reference for this. So are you for me? Are you against me? What's happening here? And he inquires, and I love that courage of him. And, and I also notice this about Joshua, because it's true about me, is that Joshua had assumptions. Joshua had assumptions. He had an assumption that this, this whoever it was, was either for him or he was against him. That it's either this way or it's that way. That it has to fit in one of these two boxes, because that's his frame of reference. Anybody been there? That you just, this is how I, it either has to be this or this. And the Lord blows his mind here because it's not either. The Lord challenges his assumptions because he said it's not, that's, that's not what's going on here. He's not here to take sides and that we have 
we do have our assumptions. And, and he goes, are you for us or against us? He goes, neither. Neither one. But as commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. And Joshua responded. So he's trying to find out, and he really, quickly realizes it's the Lord himself, and I'll break that down. But he, there's a transition here from trying to get the Lord here on his side to getting on the Lord's side. And aren't we guilty of that? You'll, you'll, you'll experience that in prayer, won't you? Where you try to get the Lord on your side. Maybe it's on your side of an argument, right? You're praying about a person. Well, Lord, you know how this is. You know how this person is, Lord. Or maybe you're trying to get the Lord on your side in decisions you're wanting to make. Maybe it's, Lord, you want to get the Lord on your side on the direction you want your life to go. You want to get the Lord's side on decisions you want to make. And, and I tell you, if we can just back up from that assumption and we can say, Lord, I don't want you to, I don't want you to be on my side. I want to be on your side, Lord. I want to be in your will. I want to be doing what you're doing. I don't remember the exact quote, but I remember Abraham Lincoln saying something in the Civil War about you got to make sure you're on the Lord's side. you got to make sure you're on the right side of this. Or it's going to come out. you just, you got to be on the right side. you got to be on the Lord's side on this whole issue. That's what Abraham Lincoln was saying in regard to slavery. You gotta be, we got to be on the Lord's side on this. And... And, and, I, and we have to approach life like that. Lord, Lord, let me back up far enough from this, Lord, that I can see you so I can see who you are and that I can be on your side. And so he says, this is the commander of the army of the Lord. Uh, NIV, others say, uh, the captain of the Lord host. And this is Jesus himself, okay? This is called a, the, a theophany. It's an appearing of God. And we know this because in, in Revelation chapter 22, 8 and 9, um, we read of John bowing to the angel who revealed to him the events in the book of Revelation. In 22.9, the angel responds, the angel says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and a brethren, the prophets, and those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And so we see all through, all through the Bible, anytime, anytime a person, there's an angelic visit, and a person responded in worship to that angelic visit, every single time they deflected the worship, and, and said, no, no, that's for God alone. No, that's for him. This doesn't occur in this situation. Actually, the commander of the Lord host receives his worship. And Hebrews 2.10 calls him the captain of our salvation. Isaiah 55.4, Christ is called our leader and our commander. Psalm 46.7, he is called the Lord of hosts, meaning he is sovereign. He reigns over the angelic forces. That's Christ himself. And so here we have Jesus, this, this is so amazing, here we have Jesus himself who shows up to, to Joshua, takes on the form of man and shows up and presents himself to him. Well, why is this important? Why is this crucial? Why is this happening at this moment right here? We know it's important because God's timing is always, is, is always important. But he did this so that Joshua would see who's in charge. So Joshua would see Who's in command? So Joshua would see whose battle it really was. So Joshua would know his place as a leader. As a leader, he would be a person of humility. And that when victory was wrought, that it wouldn't be, he knew it wouldn't be in his own strength. It wouldn't be in his own resources. It wouldn't be because of his great military mind. It would be because of the commander of the Lord's host. 
And so here he responds in in humility. Verse 14, he falls down on his face in reverence. And I love what he does here. This is true worship. He falls down on his face in reverence. And he worships him. You see, guys, our worship is more than singing songs. Singing songs is a part of it, but it's a heart attitude. It's a heart of humility. It's not just reading words off a screen or reading words out of a hymnal. To music, it is a heart of reverence. It's a heart of humility. It's a heart that wants to encounter Jesus. It's a heart that, that at the moment of knowing God is present, falls down and prostrates oneself before God and says, Oh God, what do you have to say to me? That's the heart of worship. We think of worship as, as, as speaking to God, and it includes that. But a heart of worship receives from God because all true revelation comes out of worship. We see that in the book of Revelation where the four and twenty elders are, are on the throne before the, before the Lord. And, and we know that there's the, the cherubim and the seraphim. And you can read this in Revelation, I think it's 22. And, and you know that they fall and they, they, they see Jesus. And they, they fall and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they just have this continual revelation of who Jesus is. And as we have a heart of humility, a heart of, of bowing ourselves before Jesus that there really will be revelation that will come, revelation of understanding, a revelation of his word, of what he intends for us. And so he asked, he asked, he asked Jesus here, he says, he says, what word do you have for me? What, what do you, how do you want to instruct me? I'm willing. Teach me, Jesus. And he tells him this, he says, he says, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. It's holy. So he, he had a heart of worship. And then as he's in a position of worship, he then moves into a position of holiness. Of holiness. Because Jesus said, take off your sandals. For the place you're standing is, is holy. And you know, what did Joshua do? He did it, didn't he? He took his shoes off. He says, Joshua did so right then. He had an obedient heart. He had a, he had a heart that said yes. And this reminds us of Moses, doesn't it? Haven't you, all these last few weeks, as we've been accounting for um, the children of Israel moving in to this promised land. It's, it's, like this, it's like this mirror of what happened when they move out of Egypt. We had the circumcision, we had the Passover, we had the parting of the water, and now we have a holy spot, a holy place where shoes are being removed. Because, you remember what he told? Do you remember what he told Joshua? He said, I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses. And so here he's showing himself, he's proving himself, so to speak. He's, he's letting Joshua know that he really is with him, that, that he really is here. And, and so he's reminding him that he's with him just like he was with Moses. And so here he says this place is holy. Well, what made this place holy, right? What made it holy is that Jesus is there. Because Jesus is there, it is holy. And this ties us back into the presence of the Lord. Because through every chapter of Joshua we've been looking at, the presence of God is what is most important in every in this whole account is the presence of God. In chapter 1, three different times the Lord said to Joshua, He said, I will be with you. My presence will be with you. In chapter 2, uh, it stated that the people of, uh, of Rahab, Rahab said it was obvious that God was with Israel. 
it was obvious that God's presence was, was upon this nation. Chapters 3 and 4, we, we see how they walked with the ark, and the ark represented the presence of God. Now here in chapter 5, the command of the Lord's army, Jesus himself appears. And so here we have this presence of the Lord. And it's paramount. That is, that is, that's crucial. An application of our lives, God, for us to, guys, for us to move into all that God has for us. To walk in the presence of God is, is paramount. It's simply paramount. And when we walk in that presence of God, we're walking in holiness. Because God is there. And holiness has been, really, and His holiness has been bastardized to be about what you wear, about how you dress, about all these outside things, and it has nothing to do with that. That's, I mean, if you're, if you're walking with God, it impacts how you dress, how you walk, how you talk, all different kinds of things, but it's not based on outward stuff. Holiness is based upon Jesus. It's based upon the presence of God. It's based upon relationship, because where Jesus is, the place is holy. And if we're walking with Jesus, if we're a temple of the Holy Spirit, then, then where we're walking should be a walk, should be a position of holiness. Because what holiness means is being set apart to be used by the Lord. It means just like this. It means responding to Him with a yes. With a yes, whatever it is. A position of holiness is yes, Lord. Whether He wants us to do something or wants us to not do something. The response is yes, Lord. Yes. Have you ever thought about why shoes? I mean, why shoes? I mean, maybe there's some deep cultural meaning. I don't know. I've never seen it. But as I was studying this week, I was just, I was just thinking, why shoes? Why shoes? Because when I think of holiness, right, when we talk about holiness, there's this fear of God aspect, which is legit, which is true. But there's this holiness, this fear of God aspect, where it's this almost like this drawing away is I think how we can often think of this, of being afraid. Yes, there's a fear of the Lord, but it's afraid of the holiness of God. So I would think that if you're in a holy place, you're putting more shoes on, not less. You know what I'm saying? Because you've got to separate that from the holiness of God. That's how religion would be. But here, the Lord tells him, take your shoes off. You're on a holy place. Like, what's one of the most sensitive parts of your body? Like, right? Like, it's the bottom of your feet, isn't it? That's why, you know, all through the ages, one of the first things that was a technology, technologically advancement for man was shoes. Because it hurts when you step on stuff, doesn't it? And I just think how powerful it is that God is, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm here. This place is special. This place is holy. And I want you to take off that which would separate you from my holiness. And I want you in one of your most vulnerable places to stand in my holiness. Friends, that's powerful. Friends, that's life-changing. That changes your view on holiness, doesn't it? That makes me, I, I want to be holy, like God's holy. Right? I mean, that changes my view on holiness. is isn't something to be afraid of. Holiness is something that you can trust. The holiness of God, the goodness, the pureness, the completeness of God is so good that He wants nothing 
to separate us from his holiness. Wow. I love that. And so as we walk as people of worship, as we walk as people in holiness, then we come and we have to understand that we're then, after we're walking in worship, walking in holiness, walking in the presence of God, that we're positioned for spiritual warfare. And this brings us to chapter 6, verse 1. And, okay, verse 1 is just, it's is kind of like a, a sideline, right? Because here you have this whole account of the commander of, of, of the Lord, of the Lord host. You have this whole account. And then over here, you just have like verse 1 randomly. It just, it's so random, but I'll explain why the author includes it. So the, so the Lord tells Joshua, take your shoes off. He did. It's like, it goes like back to the narrator voice. You know, we've had Jesus' voice, take your shoes off, and then the narrator on the movie, you know, comes on. And now, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. And then it like goes back to the story. So why is this here? Why does this, why does this happen? Well, it happens to show the impossibility of the situation. The city was shut up. It was a fortified city. It was a walled city, right? And they had shut up the walls, which is a symbolic, is they were not open to the God of Israel. They had shut their walls. They were not open. They were not open to reconciliation. They were not open to negotiation. They were not open. They had shut up their walls, and there was no way people could get out, no way to get back in. Like, it was, it was fortified. And so they knew there was, so militarily, the children of Israel, the people of God, were at a great, great disadvantage. Huge disadvantage. And so the author here is reminding us what's going on. This is a battle. And, and uh, maybe, that's why Jer- maybe that's why Joshua was even there in the first place looking at Jericho. Maybe he was standing there like, um, how are we going to do this? See, that's what leaders do. You knew that, right? Um, this is impossible. Wow. And then Jesus shows up. And then the impossible becomes possible because Jesus is there. And this is what he says to him. He says, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. The battle's already yours. It's already done. It's, and, and, and Joshua could have been like, uh, Lord, no, it's not. Uh, there, there's the walls. Did you, Jesus, do you not see these walls? Have you ever prayed like that? Lord gives you a promise like, Lord, you must not be seeing this like I see it, right? You, let, me, let me help you with this a little bit, Lord. This is the reality of the situation, right? Because it was true that the city was walled. It was true it was impenetrable. But the truth is, is that the Lord had already given it to them. The truth was the Lord already had the victory. The truth was in the spirit it was already done. And that's what the Lord's trying to teach Joshua that this is more spiritual than anything else. And that's one of the takeaways we can have this morning. That there, this life we're living is a whole lot more spiritual, right, than we, a lot of times we acknowledge. A lot of times we are living in, in honestly, we're living in, in ignorance of the reality of the spiritual warfare that's going on around us. And I know there's extremes, right? Like there's the extreme that there's a devil behind every bush. There's the extreme of using God against God, Right? Like, there's this extreme, extreme just ridiculousness. But there's also the extreme that it's all up to me. It's all in my resources. The problems I'm having are just bad luck. Or the good that I'm going to have is just what I can make happen. 
right? And so these three, and the Lord wants us to do is walk in a balance of being naturally supernatural, but of understanding that there is a spiritual dynamic to this life we live, and that moving into all that God has for us is as much spiritual as it is anything else. And if we simply try to live our lives in a physical aspect of what our mind can conceive, of just living in the natural aspect without tapping into the spirit of God and what God wants to do in the spiritual realm, then we're just, folks, we're missing a huge, huge part of it. And Jesus wanted Joshua to know, hey, I'm in this with you. I'm here with you. In fact, I've already given you the victory. And not only have I given you the victory, I'm going to give you the strategy. And it's not going to be a, I mean, I don't think, I could be wrong because I've never been in the military, but I don't think this battle plan has ever been in any military book since then. Right? We're going to study Warfare 101. Turn to the book of Joshua chapter 6. Uh, we're going to, we're going to we're, you know, can you imagine a general in the army like telling his troops to do this? You're like, what in the world are you thinking? This is not sound military strategy. You know, if the Lord's in it. The Lord's in it. If the Lord's given you these instructions. And so he told them how, to, how it was going to happen. We'll go more into, into that, that next week. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's where the battle is. And that's what Jesus wanted Joshua to know. This isn't because how smart you are. This isn't, be, it isn't any of that stuff. It isn't about you. He wanted him to be able to discern the situation from the Lord's perspective. And that's what we need to be able to do. When we come into impossible circumstances, one of the best questions we can ask is, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, what are you doing? And then not, Lord, help me do this. Lord, get on my side. Oh, Lord, me, 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 me. Right? That's what our prayer usually is. But, Lord, what are you doing? How can I discern this? And how can I partner? And how can I get, get in line? How can I get in on the program with this? How can I get in line, Lord, with what you're doing? This dependence on God and in his ways. Because, friend, time after time, we see God loves using the weak things to show himself strong. And here he uses some folks with some ram's horns. And we already know the, the story, right? We sang about it earlier. The walls come down. We'll talk about that next week. The walls come down. But it's done because they're tapped into heavenly resources, not their military prowess, not because of their own resources. There's a powerful verse in in Isaiah 31, it's, it's not on the screen, but let me just, let me just read it to you. It's, Isaiah here is instructing the, the people of God, later generations from this time in Joshua. He's instructing them on how to trust in the Lord. And he says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And all through Scripture, Egypt represents um, the flesh, the, the best man has to offer. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, Again, that would be the strength of what man has to offer. Who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from God. Woe to them. He's not saying the horses are bad and chariots are bad. The Lord's saying that things that we have to offer in this world are not, He's not saying they're bad. He's saying what's bad is when your trust is put in those things. 
When you're facing impossible circumstances and your trust is put in your relationships you have. When your trust is put in the resources you have. When your trust is put in your retirement account. When your trust is put in your insurance coverage. When your trust is put in in relationships you have or the job you have or whatever it might be. When your trust is put in these things, that's when it gets you. That's when it gets you. We have to trust in the resources of the Lord. And so as we wrap up this morning, I really believe God wants us all to move into all that he has for us. And it happens as we're positioned as people of worship, walking in holiness, engaging in spiritual warfare, positioned in the presence of God. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for the example of Joshua. Lord, thank you of one, Lord, who has has responded to you in this story, Lord, with great authenticity and humility. And Lord, I pray that we would be like Joshua. Lord, I pray we'd have a spirit like Joshua. Lord, that we would be people, Lord, who would walk in worship. Lord, when we discern your presence, Lord, our first position is on our face in humility. Lord, asking for instruction. And Lord, being obedient in that, Lord, and walking in your ways. I thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I know that there's some people here today facing some walls, facing some things that look impossible. But Lord, I'm thankful, Lord, that with you, nothing is impossible. Lord, nothing is impossible with you. And so, Lord, I pray now for courage, Lord. For courage, Lord, as your promise has been, be bold, be strong, be courageous. Why? Because you are with us, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, that you are with each person here who calls You, Lord, right now. And Lord, these things that seem impossible are not impossible. Lord, I pray they would have your discernment, Lord, your perspective, your understanding of their situation. In Jesus' name, amen.